welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is my podcast where I get to talk to coaches about coaching. And today we have Scotty Williams with us again to chat. Thanks for coming in, Scotty. Thank you. Thanks for having me again, Brent. We're going to have a nice chat today and we have got a second guest, uh, a guest that was on the show recently, Nick Bolowski. Uh, thanks for coming in, Nick. Thanks for having me, Brent. Scotty, how are you? Good to see you, mate. Face to face. First time in a long time. It's been a while. Now, I got some feedback on your up, upbeat and outgoing introductions, Scotty, from the last episode. So really? I think- What sort of feedback? Just that you are the the guy that should be doing them every week. So <laughs> I'm going to throw to you to introduce today's topic. All right. Well, that's a lot of pressure. I don't know what I did last time, but it would have been something along the lines of um, today we're going to talk about talent identification. So it's something that we've that's been uh, part of other sports for quite a long time in quite a systematic way, um, but. A lot less of it has been done in golf, um, but there are some potential things that we could do, some of which has been utilised and some of which has not. So we're going to get right into that today. And um, the, the gentleman that's joining us has actually probably used a bit of that, whether formally or informally before, when selecting squads and, and uh, people that will be part of the program that we work in together. So, um, so he'll have a bit to add, I'm sure. I think we can have a good chat because there's there's... Obviously, we can cover it off from a physical perspective, which is your area of expertise, Scotty, and then we'll come at it from a, a golf skills perspective, which is going to be in mine and Nick's wheelhouse. So I think we can have a have a have a good chat about there. It's um it's a different sport because if you look as a general um, on the PGA Tour, you see so many different types of golfers out there. So if you're the average Joe checking out the the top level players out there on tour, you wouldn't think there'd be a specific type. You don't um, tend to see guys built like Craig Parry sprinting around the AFL field. So it's not quite the same fit for golf. There's obviously some different perspectives. But um, just first up with you, Scott, I'll get your opinion straight away on what are some of the things we should be testing with regards to talent from a physical point of view? Well, um, some of the previous discussions we've had, we've talked about flexibility, we've talked about power. Um, so obviously they're things that, that can be tested for, uh, you know, strength, endurance, um, but, but definitely looking at what how they're using those attributes in their golf swing. So it really has to be an integrated approach uh, with, with the coach and any kind of biomechanical testing that, that um, is included. Um, yeah, so it's it's really most of what we've just talked about there is stuff that we'd we'd use for talent development rather than for talent identification. So um, I've got some theories about how it could be done better in golf, um, but I guess initially what we can probably talk about is some other sports where we know how they're actually using um, this sort of information. So talent ID with within the AFL. Um, is typically starts with the draft combine. Now it starts before that, the scouts will check them out in under 16 and under 18 competitions, but um, the draft combine is, is a big one. And um, some of my academic colleagues at Vic Uni have actually recently published a paper on this, which is Gogos 2020 um, et al. And uh, where they actually went through the draft combine data 
from 1999 to 2016, so it's 1,500 players. And basically, they picked a few metrics to say how good was their career, like what were their player ratings, um, how many games did they play. There's a few other metrics like that. And then they looked back at their original combine information, which was mostly physical. Now, I believe they're adding in some skill-based assessments and that sort of thing, and a lot of clubs do it themselves. The draft combine itself is more of a physical combine. And they doing some modelling to sort of work out, well, the players have tested really well in the combine. What sort of career did they end up having? And they were able to predict about 3% of um, in-game performance and 4% of matches played. So if they've had a good career, obviously they play more games because they don't get delisted. So the ability of the combine to predict that was absolutely pathetic. So if you've got a predictive model and it predicts 3% of the outcome, or if you're a gambler, you're not going to make much money. And um, effectively, it was showing that the combine wasn't really, well, wasn't predicting career outcomes. So that in itself is interesting. Now, I guess the questions are why? Why, why would that be? Um, can you think of anything? Like, is there any, anything that would jump out as to why that would be? It was a bit of a surprise finding, but um, any sort of theories you could pluck out for that? You probably see, as you said, it's a purely physical test. Um, and you see quite often the top half a dozen draft picks don't gen- don't always turn out to be the superstars of the league. It's Sometimes it could be someone who's a, like a 10th like a or a 12th draft pick that turns out to be the superstar. Is it to do because there's no – is there any psych testing in the draft camps? There is now. There is now? Yeah. 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 So obviously someone's – um, uh, psychological makeup can have an influence on how coachable they are and how they can adapt to that team based um, yeah. team based sport. So that would have an impact on it, I would think. It, Scotty, it was interesting in preparation for for this episode. I did some some research on some of the draft combine results for the AFL. Mm. And it actually seems like the athletes, not not in all categories, but most of the tests, the athletes are actually getting better year on year now. So we're seeing things like the, it used to be a 3K time, t- time trial, it's now two, but basically the, a lot of the athletic measurements are actually improving across the board. So the players that come through the combine and get drafted seem to be a little bit more ready-made, but you could also interpret that as having less upside as well, they're almost yeah. they're physically developed by the by the time they get to the club. Yeah, and, and I'd I'd extend on that. And my theory as to why the data from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand sixteen didn't basically show much is because once the players are recruited, they get into a professional training environment where you know basically the extremes of the best athlete to the worst athlete are going to regress to the mean. They're basically going to become more homogenized, more similar to each other. So. After three or four years, if you're still in the system, you're probably not that far behind the other players. Now, the other thing with a sport like AFL is there are many different ways that a player can contribute. And, you know, essentially, provided they're maximising their own strengths within their game, they're, pro- they're probably going to have some kind of career. Um, there's not one way to do it. Whereas I would sort of argue that golf is actually probably the opposite on all of those counts. So, um, you know, the players don't move into an elite training environment a lot of the time. They're certainly not as well prepared as, as to what you said um, in terms of going into the testing. 
Um, and, you know, there's less, I, I think there's less wiggle room in a sport like golf to sort of get it done in different ways. It's sort of, it, it's, it's not as dynamic. There's not as many degrees of freedom in the sport. You've basically got to stand over the ball and if you can, you've got to hit it close and you've got to hit it far. Um, so in a sense, to me, that, that shows that there's a lot of potential in trying to identify the players that have physical upside, which is sort of my take-home message today, which we'll get into. Yeah, I'd be I'd be keen to cover off. Is there is there in a from a physical perspective, is there a deal breaker? Is there one specific area that they have to test at a certain standard to be any good in golf? Is there or can it all be trained? Can it all be improved? Um, well, I I would say that at the end of the day we've got to look at club head speed and ball speed. So there's going to be a certain threshold beyond which you could look at the PGA Tour, for example, and go, well, no player has been on the PGA Tour in the last 15 years with a club head speed below this or a ball speed below this. And so, so there's going to be some lower thresholds there that you have to, have to meet. And you'd probably want to exceed them by a good 20 or 30% because you'll probably find that the players that are at those sort of lower levels of power, for example, are probably so exceptional in another part of their game that, you know, you wouldn't want to bank on that. So, so I reckon there's going to be a, a cutoff club head speed. And Nick's probably got more of an opinion on this, but it seems to be somewhere around the 110 mark, 110 miles per hour club head speed. You're not going to want to forge a professional career with something that's too far below that. So then we need to look at the physical attributes and go, well, what have they got? I mean, if they're five foot four and they weigh 65 kilos a bloke, well, they're going to want to be exceptional in some other areas. So then, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a matrix, but we've got to get them up to those sort of baseline thresholds of performance. Um, so, yeah, again, it's sort of an integrated decision, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Just on the topic of club head speed as well, Scott, for you, do you think there's a certain age where it's really hard for somebody to develop that, you know, strength, power, speed, club head speed beyond a certain age? Well, there's those, the theory, which is still more or less a theory, but the windows of trainability. So you've got your sort of three speed windows. So when a, a kid is between the age of, I think, is it six and nine? Boys and girls vary yeah. just a little bit. Yeah. So that's where their, their nervous system's really open and ready to be to be trained. So if they're sitting on the couch and not doing much, that's not going to be good for them long term. Um, then I believe it's just after peak height velocity. So when they've just finished their growth spurt, is the second speed window, and then the third speed window is when they've reached full, um, when they're you know fully grown around that sort of eighteen to twenty one time. So, the, I guess in in answer to your question, it kind of links back to the AFL. Um, you know, in terms of professionalism of how we develop players. No offense to the golf industry, but I think we're probably back where the AFL was in about nineteen ninety five. If you had to look across the board and you said grassroots, making sure that all the pathways are perfectly structured, etc., we're probably about 25 years behind a lot of the professional sports. So, therefore, if we're just trying to hit 110 miles per hour, I'd almost, I'd almost back you and me, Nick, to get most people up to that. If, if they said, I'll give you 10 hours a week, let's do it, I feel like I could get most, most players to that. Fast forward 15 to 20 years from here, when that 110 mile an hour is no longer 110 mile an hour, it's actually 120, which is where the AFL would be now, for example. Well, that's going to be tougher. 
then you're going to be starting to look at the couch potatoes when they were seven, eight, nine, who are basically glued to computers. Um, and you go, mm, don't know if they're going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and that's the interesting thing, isn't it, Scott? You know, we, we're saying 110 miles an hour now, but we're seeing that, you know, the the average club head speed of players in the PJ Tour going up, the driving distance going up. And the guys that are really dominating and doing well, they're already around that 120 mile an hour mark, aren't they? Yeah, so it really, the question really becomes how good a career do you want to have? Um, now, if you're a genetically gifted athlete, if you, both your parents were Olympians and you're six foot three and 95 kilos, nice and lean and flexible, well, then things are going to come a bit easier. To, but, for, but for the average person, um, we're going to have to start doing a better job earlier. Yeah, and just on that, Scott, as well, it seems like people are training for golf earlier as well. Um, mm. I know we've had some some athletes, well, athletes in air quotes, coming into our program <laughs> where the, the first time they've touched the weight is when they show up to the program. Uh, but we're, we're seeing a lot more now, you know, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds and sometimes younger actually getting in the gym and doing exercises and, and valuing physical fitness. So that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, absolutely it's going to be a good thing. And, um, you know, I think uh, that the golf industry being an individual sport, um, you know, doesn't just necessarily fo- follow suit with all the other team sports. But, you know, I guess when you're sort of, let's say, 15 to 20 years behind and you can look and you can see the benefits and the results from other sports, you know, basically concrete information that this is a better way to go, well, we can learn from that, can't we? And it seems that, um, you know, junior development programs are more prevalent. They're more holistic. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the industry is learning, aren't we, really? Is it, is it going to get to a point, because golf's obviously seen as a late-peaking sport, um, so there isn't that pressure to early specialise in a sport like golf. But if you miss those strength training windows that you are talking about early, is it going to be more of a more of a trend towards golfers specialising in golf earlier on, do you think? I hope not, because um, that's not the answer. So it's purely a physical thing, isn't it? I mean, so, so the, um, the, the general gist out there, which is fairly well understood, I think, is that you really want to train um, young kids to be multi-sport athletes um, and just to develop all of their physical skills and capacities. Um, so, so in a sense, at the age of 12 or 13, they could put, you know, potentially go into any sport, particularly if it's a striking, a bat and ball sport, um, and they could be, you know, do quite well if they wanted to. And then obviously as they get into their sort of um, early to mid-teens, they, they start to just narrow that focus a bit more towards the sport that they choose if it's if it was to be golf. So it's probably more, the limitations more on the physical development side of things. Um, you know, but they obviously developing hand-eye coordination is one of those fundamental skills. So um, I don't know, Nick, have you got a comment on that? Yeah, I was going to say the the late specialisation concept is understood, I think, by coaches now. I think, you know, most coaches would understand and interpret that properly. I think the big issue is around the the parents and the the role models mm. that that um, that the junior athlete has. Like they're seeing, say, a Bryson DeChambeau or a Justin Thomas um, coming out and winning at a much earlier age. Uh, Colin Morikawa is a good example of that as well. They're coming out and winning at a much earlier age, so they're looking from the from an outside perspective, thinking that. 
uh, these golfers are early specialisers, but in fact they're not. A lot of those players, although they're winning at age you know, 21 to 25, they've got 15 years of experience under their belt um, playing golf, but playing other sports as well. Mm. So, so probably that key point is to um, keep the parents informed of what's going on and obviously coaches need to be conscious that the, the early coaching needs to be not just skill-based. It needs to have that physical component to it as well. Yeah, and it's we, in a coaching sense, we run into the problem of uh, parents bringing their juniors along to a program and they want them to be further along the track than what they actually are. It's it's completely okay to have one group coaching session a week from age 12 to 17. You don't need to have a, a long-term program where there's 15 hours of training in there. It's okay to go and play other sports, you know, AFL, cricket, tennis, basketball, all the other sports are going to help their development. And and by setting the guidelines as a coach, they're arguably going to gain more from going out on the golf course by themselves anyway and self-exploring and picking up strategies and techniques for, for playing different types of shots out on the golf course by themselves. I, I would agree with that. And there's yeah, anecdotally, there's I can think of lots of examples where somebody has came to the sport relatively late you know, maybe 15 or 16 years of age, but they've played a lot of other sports and they've gotten their handicap down really quickly and they've been able to compete really quickly because they've sampled all these other sports and their hand-eye coordination's really developed. Um, so if there's any parents of young athletes listening to this, uh, keep them playing all the other sports as long as you can. Well, I'll, I'll give you a personal um, story from um, uh, my son who... When he first started Auskick and AFL, had no idea. Could try and kick the ball and fall flat on his backside. Wouldn't have any idea of what he was doing. And I tell this story quite often to trainees and stuff like that. But then he did a course at school of gymnastics and his kicking skills went through the roof overnight. So just by wow. doing some sort of other, other sports, other types of training, he got a bit more conscious of his body in space and all of a sudden he could kick a football much better. So it certainly works. Yeah, I, I just uh, just something. Sorry, I, I just um, I had something I just dug out of my thesis actually, just with what you were talking about, um, how the the better players are getting reaching the top at a younger age. Um, so I actually did some. Um, uh, one of the things I looked at was world golf ranking, and there was a study on it which showed that um, basically it used to take so players that were born between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen eighty eight. <clears throat> which would be all of us, it took between six and 10 years to reach the top 100 in the world, whereas players that were born after 1989, it takes now an average of three and a half years. So so basically from seven and a half years to now down to three and a half. So half the time, if they're going to reach the top 100, they do it in half the time. <clears throat> so that's that's a sign that there's a trend there for sure. Yeah. So you could you could take that as well, Scotty. Even from an investment point of view, you in, you invest in your athlete for a given period of time, and if they haven't made it after, let's say five years, then cut them loose. Yeah. And that's and that's well, and that's why we're looking. But we're looking for the bolters, aren't we? We're looking for the players that are going to go from here to here quickly and that's i guess where we're if that's what we want then we better you know dovetail back into talent id and work out what the hell we should be do, should be doing there mm. so continue brent sorry mate 
Jump yeah, in. That, 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 that's harsh, Nick. <laughs> just go, palm them off straight away if they can't do it. Well, you, you still want them to be engaged in the game, but you know they're probably not going to make it after a certain point, are they? And don't get me wrong, there are some outliers that you know have gotten a PJ Tour card at the age of forty and have gone on to have good careers, but it's they're outliers. It's not the it's not normal for that to happen. Okay. Mm. So coming back to talent ID from a golf skills perspective, Nick, what are you testing for or keeping an eye out for when you've got junior programs running and you're trying to find that that star coming through? Talk me through some of the things that you're trying to see out there with your junior players. So we've already touched on uh, club head speed. That's an obvious one, I think. Um, hand-eye coordination is is a big thing. Um, and again, it gets back to them coming in and you know, having some other sports or have sampled some other sports so they can take to the game uh, quite quickly. Um, and one thing that I think we need to talk about, it's not necessarily ticking off the junior development box, is the concept of winning at a young age as well. I think that's a really common denominator for a lot of elite players. They, they're winning athletes from a very young age. So they might be playing some junior tournaments or some youth tournaments, but they're actually going through and winning at an early age. So that, that's something that I see, um, you know, winning is a habit, as they say. Uh, so that's something that I like to see in that youth golf and not so much the the junior development space. Okay. So, you again, probably more of a physical type of thing. Is there any particular golf skills, like specific golf skills that stand out that you are trying to see? Um, not necessarily because a, a, lot, of, uh, a, a lot of things are – you know, they, they can be trained. Um, you know, if somebody has only played golf for, let's say, one, two or three years, they're going to be fairly rough around the edges. So I'm not necessarily looking for any particular uh, technical aspect or anything that's, you know, skill-wise that's, that's developed. Um, you know, the club head speed is a big thing. Um, the ability to produce power, um, that's obviously pretty important. But we're not looking for somebody to be, you know, having a perfect putting stroke or holding a certain amount of putts by a given age or, you know, have a, a particular skill in the bunkers. Um, it's it, it's quite generic, I think, at that young age, the skills that we're looking for. Well, if I, if I throw it to you, if we get a little bit older, so we get to that, say, 16, 17, 18 type age group where the, the player comes to you and says, my goal is to be a tool player and he's got, say, all the... F- physical stuff that we've spoken about and he's got that and he's hitting all the marks there. What skills are you trying to see with that type of player? Uh, Well, ball control is going to be uh, a big thing, Um, making sure they at least have an understanding of what controls the ball and then actually being able to do it. So you'd want them to have one particular stock ball flight, if you like, that could be, you know, a draw or fade or, or high or low or a combination of all those. And then probably from there, being able to hit, at least another two two shot variation. So they're going to have their stock shot that they can hit, have some sort of shot where they can control the trajectory of the ball. So whether it be a knockdown shot or a punch shot or something like that, and then have a shot where it holds up the ball in the opposite direction to their stock ball flight. So not expecting a 16 or 17-year-old athlete to be able to hit the nine ball flights at all, but just being able to hit the stock shot have a hold-up shot going the opposite direction and a knockdown shot and a punch shot, or a punch shot, I should say, for a total of three out of the nine. How many tour players out there these days can actually 
actually can hit all nine. I wouldn't have thought there wouldn't be too many these days. They all tend to hit the one specific shot most of the time, don't they? Yeah, I think uh, you know most tour players will have those three variations that I just spoke of there: the stock, the hold up, and the and the knockdown. You can certainly get by with without having a knockdown. Um, if I just digress for a little bit, my uh, former boss David Wren. Never used to hit knockdown shots at all. He just said, whenever I try and hit a knockdown shot, it doesn't match with my technique. So all I do is just take more club and just hit it normal. So you can survive uh, pretty well on the golf course without having a knockdown shot. And it's probably made easier as well today with the way the balls are made as well, right? They don't tend to spin as much. They're not going to upshoot and balloon into the wind. So skill-wise, I think golfers just need to have those three shots. And hey, if you can develop all nine, that's fantastic, but you don't necessarily need them. Mm. So how much of a role does that coaches feel or that coaches instinct play in these players? Because you may see someone that can't do that at this certain time, but there might be something you can see in them as a golf coach that you can coach that into them as they go along. How much of a role does that play? It plays a really big role. And I think as coaches, we've improved a lot uh, in this area. Days gone by when a 16 or 7-year-old would come along and just say, for example, you're not happy with their grip uh, just because it doesn't match your preferences. Traditionally, you'd go in and change that, whereas now I think the coaches are using their instinct and their intuition a lot more to to know what to change, when to change it, and how it fits into the bigger picture. Uh, so we're seeing younger players come through with, overall, I'd say the technique is better, but we're not so quick to go and change things. We're, we're going to let the Jim Furyks of the world come through and just naturally develop and play with their own, you know, unique flair and unique technique. So I think we're getting better at that. I've got a question, um, Nick, just got around sort of the, the skills aspect of the game. Um, so I've, as part of my research, I've, I've checked out a, a whole bunch of different skills tests that, um, that have been validated. Do you have any sort of preference or do you see any use for things like the nine, because you, you reminded me of the nine ball skills test. So there's the nine ball skills test. There's the approach iron shot um, test, which can discriminate between sort of low handicappers and, and um, better than scratch handicappers. Um, there's obviously the track man combine. Um, there's all the short game pelts, short game tests. Have you sort of, do you feel like they tell you anything you don't already find out in other ways or, or can you use them as sort of a test retest sort of scenario or in a talent ID format? Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, so in my coaching, I use a skills test quite extensively. Um, and one of the big reasons why I use it is obviously the test and retest. But golf is such a unique sport from a coaching perspective where all the other sports that we name, the coach is going to be there with the athlete on game day. And mm. in golf, very rarely is a, is a coach going to be with the athlete on game day. So we need to have statistics and skills tests in place to help with the training development, but also from a talent ID as well. And those tests that you reeled off just before, you know, the nine ball uh, test, I use that a lot um, as a test, but also just as a skill development. Work out what they've got, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and that the nine ball test helps to kind of uh, even out somebody's technique, if you like. So if they have an ability to be able to hit the all the nine ball flights, then you know that the technique is going to be pretty 
standard. It's going to, you know, you're going to assume that they've got, you know, good face and path control and the angle of attack's pretty good and the low point control is good to be able to hit all of those shots. The Pell skills test I use uh, quite a bit. Uh, the only thing I'd say against the Pell's skills test is that it's repetitive in the patterns. So you have to be really careful with how you get somebody to do it. You don't necessarily want somebody hitting 10 eight-yard bunker shots in a row because they're just going to get good and they're going to figure it out. So you need to try and randomize, randomize that it yeah. as best as you can. Um, and the TrackMan Combine uh, has been good. The only issue with the TrackMan Combine is, one, you need a TrackMan, so not everybody can do it. And I find that athletes, when they're doing that, can get quite fatigued. It, it can take... I think to do it properly, it's going to take at least 45 minutes to do it well. And then the fatigue element actually creeps into the activity that you're doing as well. So mm. I'm interested, is the TrackMan Combine actually uh, validated by uh, any research at all at this stage? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. No, it hasn't been, it hasn't been published. Um, I mean, they, they would have an extreme amount of data <laughs> To work with on the back end so um it, it obviously has some pretty good utility you know it's something you can do indoors there's a lot of upside to it but uh, i haven't seen it in the published literature um but i haven't focused 100 on that area so i could have missed it so just anecdotally anyway with the trackman combine we noticed that uh the better players do tend to have higher scores than that so i'm wondering whether it actually correlates to performance or world ranking or or anything like that. But like you said, they've got the data there. It'd be good if somebody uh, jumped in there and made use of it. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm curious with the skills testing, Nick, and you've, you've, you've propped two questions to my to my front of mind. The first one I was thinking of is, okay, how valid are the skills test scores if they're doing it on a driving range, flat lie, zero pressure type situation? Um, as opposed to getting a long-term stats breakdown of a player in on-course situations. And the second part was thought of then when you said the fatigue coming in doing the trackman combine, is that not a good thing? Because they're going to be fatigued on the golf course at certain times. Yeah, so if, if, I, if we talk about the trackman combine, first of all, it, it, is, a, it is a fair point. Uh, but the, the trackman combine is very much just, you know, you've got a pile of balls there, you're not really changing your hitting location at all. And you're not generally most people when they do it, they're not using a pre-shot routine. So you could argue the trackman combine doesn't really transfer or isn't that specific to the round of golf where the fatigue is in a round of golf is coming in from the endurance and the walking and going sideways up a hill and, um, you know, that, that aspect of actually playing in a competition where the trackman combine fatigue is coming from the repetitive nature of producing power and hitting shots. So it's probably a different type of fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to your first point, though, yeah, the stats from competition, that's the gold standard. That's what we want to see. But the problem is I think for a lot of golfers when they're training, they're not training with any purpose or any level of intensity. So although – the skills testing, we do want to see positive results on those and we can be using that to see trends in training. It can really just be used as an intensity tool to make sure that if they're out there doing a particular test, if it takes half an hour, we know that that half an hour block of practice on whatever the particular skills test is, is of good quality 
and it's building a bridge from the training environment, although it might be a practice fairway or, or a practice putting green, it's building the bridge from the training environment to the golf course, which I think mm. this is a sweeping statement, but I think it's accurate. Nearly all golfers do that poorly. There's a massive disconnect between how they mm. practice on the driving range or the practice putting green and then what they do on the golf course. So the skills testing is great to, to uh, bridge that gap. I'm, I'm sort of saying uh, I, when it was partly to do with preparing for this this episode, but um, I sort of see it as a bit of a continuum. And you've got so you've got your on course performance, which you can measure with stats, and then your next layer under that is your technical skills. And if there's a disconnect there, then you've got to look at either psych, maybe they're crumbling under pressure on the golf course, or is it their their practice intention, the structure of their practice? It's you know they need more variation in their practice or more, more comp- competition in their practice. Um, and then you can sort of go down the line then to, to looking at their actual technique. Um, so maybe the breakdowns between technique and the actual technical skills test. Um, and then obviously you can then, it then sort of crosses into my area where we look at the physical. So I like to sort of look at it as a continuum and work out where the transfer is not occurring. And then there'll be, because then you can isolate, there'll be probably only two or three reasons as to why that is. And then as a coach, it makes it quick and easy to identify what do we need to change here? Is it, is it, is it psych? Is it practice uh, structure? Or is it actually something else? Yeah, I agree 100%. The, the improvement cycle and the performance cycle that um, I, I guess were kind of made famous through the, the VIS golf program, they use that extensively mm-hmm. uh, back in the days with Steve Bann and Dale Lynch. Um, so, you know, that, w- that would say like, further to your point, Scott, that, if you have that continuum going, if just say somebody breaks down performance-wise on the golf course and they're not hitting the shots that they want to hit, most people would then just go straight back and get a lesson. So they would go from 100 being the performance down to zero, I need to rebuild the swing or I need to go get some technical advice. <laughs> Whereas the continuum where you have the skills testing will say, okay, maybe I just need to go on retest and, and just tinker with that a little bit more. So instead of going from 100 to zero, you go from 100 to 75 or 80 Mm. you test it out see how it performs in the skills test and then you try and take it back out onto the golf course again and you can actually see where it breaks and like you said it's probably going to come down to one or two things it might just be a pre-shot routine or a psychological Mm. approach on the golf course it's actually the issue not so much the skill itself because you might be able to prove to yourself in the skills test that you can actually do it Exactly. But it's the pre-shot routine or the psychological breakdown that's causing the lack of performance on the golf course. Yeah. So just on that psych stuff, Nick, so as a golf coach, do you bring in an external service provider to do that psych testing or do you have something that you do uh, personally as a coach? Yeah, so I would say most of the stuff we do from a psych perspective is street-level psychology. So uh, the the golf coach or the modern golf coach is uh, – you know, jack of all trades, master of none, so to speak. So we need to have pretty pretty good street psychology skills. Um, so we're trying to teach the golfer or help the golfer to help themselves. So we can, we can teach them all the, the basic psychological um, tools that they need, and then they'll get to a point where they need to go off from, for external help. And one of, one of the coaches I've been involved with quite a bit, Tim Wendell, says, you know, from a psych perspective – giving psych help to you know young athletes or underdeveloped athletes is like feeding chocolate to pigs so you've got to <laughs> you've got to do your best to help them 
help themselves and then they'll get to a point where you need to hand them over for more specific tools. But again, from a coaching perspective, psych skills in speech marks for a junior would be something as simple as building a pre-shot routine, for example, as opposed to doing anything much, much harder than that, I would think. Yeah, I think you can even go broader than that, though, and you can talk to juniors about things like goal setting, like every every coach worth his salt should be able to talk to anybody about the process of setting goals and making sure that, you know, they're the SMART acronym um, and just, just making sure people are showing up with good intent, ready to practice, um, and they're not, you know, shooting themselves in the foot on the golf course. A lot of psych issues, unless they're clinical, they can be helped by just a, a regular run-of-the-mill PGA professional. Um, just just going back, and I, I'm sure I misquote this all the time, but it really stuck with me. It was Darren Cole was talking about um, Pat Farrell, who was a VIS uh, sports psych that was working with him for years and years. And after it was about 20 years of data, similar to the AFL combine, look back and, and look, compared the profiles of all the athletes that have been through the VIS program with those that had had success in their career and those that perhaps didn't and isolated the, the top sort of 10 or 12 players out of the 220. And the commonalities were the traits were urgency and organisation were the two separators that basically that all of them had, whereas not necessarily the rest of them had that. And you go, well, urgency and organisation, they're not exactly stand over the ball kind of skills, are they? They're more sort of their life skills. And it's just about making sure that, you know, a six-hour practice session is at 95% instead of 35%. And if you do that day after day after day, you know, it adds up. So that's something that really stuck with me. And it's just such a global and, and something that, a you know, a coach of any, you know, a strength and conditioning coach plays a role there too. But certainly the, the PGA coach is going to play a big a big role with, with sort of, uh, I guess, it's a culture thing, isn't it, really? You're trying to build the culture in the in the group that you've got, but also in the players. And urgency in organisation is something that they're going to need for every part of their life if, if they want to get somewhere. Yeah. Well, they're life skills, aren't they? And, you know, what you do off the golf course, you'll do on the golf course. So if you're disorganised away from the golf course, then very rarely you're going to be a meticulous and organised person in your preparation to play golf. So you're right, Scotty, they're global skills, they're life skills that can be taught by, you know, any coach, really. Mm. I like it a lot. Um, so, okay, so for all the coaches out there, Scotty, I'll go to you first. What are some basic things that they can look for, some basic tests that you, you would suggest that coaches can use with um, with players out there to, to get a bit of a feel for where they are physically? Uh, yeah, well, we've sort of talked about this stuff before. So if you were to put it into a, a talent ID, because that, that's obviously what we're talking about here, um, you know, there'd be the, the simple, the medicine ball throw test, so a medicine ball sit throw, a medicine ball chest pass and a vertical jump, they're your three power tests. You're going to want to test for um, shoulder rotation, hip rotation, um, and possibly possibly hip, flex, uh, hip extension as well. So they're going to be more about making sure that the player can move properly. An overhead squat test is still one of the best. Um, test out there so if someone can actually do an overhead squat with a golf club above their head and squat down until their hips are in line with their knees without bending forward too much that's a sign that they've got the right dynamic range of motion um, but you know I, I still maintain uh, that 
in a way, from a talent ID perspective, you could almost flip it on its head. If you've got two players, and let's just say they're both, you know, got a handicap of two. Let's just say for some weird reason, their psych profile is basically the same. Let's say ideally they utilize their, their speed training windows as kids by playing multiple sports and that's all they really need to have done. Um, and, and they arrive with you and one's been in the gym for five years training meticulously, which I would say, big tick, well done, but the other one hasn't, I know which one I'll be selecting. The one that hasn't, because they've got all this upside. So um, it's how you then use this testing information from a physical perspective. And in terms of selection, I, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be literally going the inverse. The AFL combine data being a massive flop over 20 years show, would reinforce that. But really, the reason that data didn't show much is because there was too many players that were coming in probably half-baked physically that trained themselves up to a higher level very quickly because it's highly trainable. So from a talent ID, I'd actually be flipping it the other way and, um, and actually selecting based off those who haven't developed well or haven't necessarily tested well. But, um, but obviously, you know, if we talk about talent development, which is a whole other story, we then obviously address all of their weaknesses. Scotty, can I play a devil's advocate for a second? What do you yeah. say? What do you say to the to the uh, to the people or to the athletes who have been talented? They've they've come into a program with a good level of performance, but they haven't done any physical work whatsoever. And then they take on some physical advice. They get into the gym. They have a program, but then their performance starts to deteriorate, and they don't end up fulfilling whatever potential they had. What 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 happens there? What happens to that athlete who has the talent, takes on some advice, does a program, and then for whatever reason doesn't actually fulfill potential? So that's where our continuum comes in. You know, if we've got all the metrics from a physical, from the physical, the technical, the skill, and the on course, then we can work out where the breakdown occurred and work out who to fire. So, <laughs> so um, I'm trying to think. I've not really experienced. Oh, look, no, maybe I have actually experienced that. I have actually seen players um, that have gone through that, but um, but the the, the correct uh, collection of information wasn't probably in play. So therefore, um, confusion reigned supreme, and uh, fingers were pointed. So really, having having a proper having some proper benchmarks and tests around each stage of those. A stage of the continuum is is the answer to that, because then the player, you know, that that um, that blip on the radar that you talk about should be two weeks, not two years. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? Because yeah, it definitely happens. Doesn't yeah, it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's probably outside of the talent ID realm, but you you hear of of players, n- none of my players, Touchwood, that. Um, will say, oh, I went to the gym or I lost a heap of weight or put on a heap of muscle and then I couldn't play or I couldn't swing it or I, I lost my swing. And I, you just think to yourself, you know, how does that how does that happen? Hence, you know, me playing devil's advocate there. You th- yeah, you think, how does that happen where somebody is doing something that we know is proven to improve performance, mm. but for whatever reason it doesn't? Yeah, so obviously we need to take an individualized approach and that's where the, you know, we, that's how we use testing information. It's always applied to the individual. It's a really good case study that I read about uh, with Justin Rose back in sort of 2015, 16. 
Um, they were wanting to get him a little bit more club head speed, a little bit more distance, but they, they constantly were using metrics, monthly testing to work out, to make sure that things were actually working, working appropriately. And there was even some on-call stats that basically showed him making use of that distance and was he actually utilising that distance because his efficiency with his distance was the best in the, on the tour, um, if that makes sense. So what, where he was scoring from where he was putting his tee shot. Um, so they wanted to make sure that they were watching that metric like a hawk because that was his strength. And in trying to improve some of his other foundational elements, they wanted to make sure that that, that metric did not drop. And they were able to, to do it and basically led to his best year. So um, there's a couple of uh, uh, strength and conditioning coaches with PhDs that actually did that case study, put it together. It was really impressive. So that was sort of exemplifies the, the correct process here. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say if you have that data-backed approach, then you're never going to stray too far away from you know where you need to be. And I think as well it's important to note that if golfers are getting into the gym, it's, it's really about um, – augmenting what they're currently doing we're, we're trying to maximize their strengths and improve on the areas we're not look we're not generally looking to do a total ground up restoration um or building something from from scratch no and look um you know the man of the moment bryson DeChambeau, it's fantastic because you know just as sort of you know tiger or well, he's possibly on the wane i mean he, he surprised me last year but um i thought he was cooked um but you know tiger has done so much from um the strength and conditioning side of the game of golf just by popularizing it. And now Bryson's doing that to the next level, but it'll, he'll have some carcass. He'll leave some carcasses on the side of the road with people to try and follow him and don't actually do what he's done, which is a very thorough approach with um, uh, Sean Foley. Is it? No. Uh, who's he Como. working? Chris, Sorry, Como. Chris Como. Chris Como. So he's constantly assessing his biomechanics and making sure that what he's doing is actually improving. And all the on-course metrics that they've got on the PGA Tour, they're looking at that stuff. So he's taking a very, very thorough approach. It's, like, it's almost like the professional gambler, you know, with, uh, with the team of people to collect data so that they're making, making good bets. And then, you know, you get your mate that basically tries to do the same thing all on his own. And uh, one wins and one loses. So, you know, the better we do things, the more sure we can be. It's exciting. It raises your stocks a bit from now on, doesn't it, Scott? It, look, it does. It, it creates more. It creates more opportunities than it does threats. Mm. But uh, for the for the young the young golfer on his own, there's a few lone wolves out there. Um, <laughs> it may not all end too well. We'll see. <laughs> see what happens. So, throwing it to a golf coaching perspective for you, Nick, some advice for coaches out there that are keen to use. So, you spoke about the ball flight drill with the nine different shots, um, trackman combine, pels, test, anything else that you want to add that coaches can use to, to test their golfers? Uh, I mean, they're the major ones that I use there. Um, the trackman combine is obviously good if you if you have the trackman. Um just digressing a little bit, what's stood the test of time but has since been replaced? Scotty, you would remember this. The national skills test was yeah. a, bit of a, a bit of a gold standard that we used for a while that has since been replaced. But that that is still valid. I mean, it might not have the the research behind it or the scientific backing, but I think for a coach just doing any type of testing is going to be a good thing. And I understand that there's, you know, time constraints to, to what people are doing. Um, if you're just a general coach that's out there and, you know, you don't necessarily have the ability to do 
you know, talent ID and be picking squads and that type of thing. I don't mind the idea of just starting your, your golf session with something like a nine ball test. You know, you're going to find out pretty quickly what somebody can and can't do and what you need to try and do with their technique or with their approach to the game to try and get them to execute as many as as many of those nine shot combinations as you can. So I'd like to keep it pretty simple. You know, we, we touched on the test that, um, that I use extensively in my coaching. So no, that there isn't anything new or, um, you know, newly created or developed that I, that I pull out. So that's probably about it. I think. Makes sense, makes sense. But as as you said, it's good to, as a coach to have that testing done early on and you can you can show it to stakeholders and say, well, this player was testing at this level when we first started. The program's been going for six months and they're now testing at this higher level. So you can show the improvement to the parents and the, the stakeholders inside of your programs, which is a good thing. Yeah. One, one thing I would add, and I, I have experiment, experimented with this a bit, for the coaches out there, although um, – this is not scientifically supported or anything like that. Feel free to create your own test for whatever scenario that you've got out there as well. Um, you know, if you think about the the testing that we traditionally do, the issues that we've got with a lot of this, uh, the skills testing is it's going to be, it's from one location. There isn't a lot of moving around. It's block type of skills testing. It's very repetitive. So you need to try and adapt your tests as best as you can to suit the game that we're actually playing. So hitting from different locations, different targets, different wind directions, using a pre-shot routine, uh, hitting shots that aren't consecutive. So it might be you hit a drive and then you hit a seven iron and then you hit a putt or a sand shot. Actually trying to mimic the game uh, a lot more, not hitting stock shots, actually hitting maybe a stock shot with a driver and then a knockdown with an iron. So you're creating that uh, specificity to the game. Uh, so you're not going to find any published skills tests that are like that. But like I said, if you're a coach, feel free to create as many of those random tests as you as you want. Um, I and think that's the test retest, isn't it? So Because yeah. you can come back to that same test with the player. The player can get some confidence that they're improving, or if not, you can quickly identify where you need to improve it. And provided, like you say, I mean, with any kind of test that we ever create in, in, uh, in the sciences, you just got to make sure you get the same warm-up. you just got to make sure you follow the protocols as similar as you can. It can be a little bit difficult with weather conditions to sort of – that can be a bit of an X factor. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's – and, you know, that allows the coach to be a bit more creative and a bit more personalised. I think it's great. Yeah. One one test actually came to mind there where we still do the pit, a pitching ladder, a traditional ladder where, you know, if we're using metres here, sorry, not yards, you might have a pitching ladder that's set up at, you know, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70. And golfers get really good at that quite quickly. You know, they're able to, you know, eyeball the, the distance and be able to pick off a swing distance and they just get used to the pattern. One good change that we made to that was actually doing it uphill and downhill and doing it blind. So it would actually set up the, the the witches' hats or the cones, if you like, on top of a ridge that they couldn't see. So they're actually hitting to a blind target. So wow. that, that starts to you know make your skills test a lot more specific. So if somebody is going at, let's say, their, their ability to hit a target on a flat pitching ladder might be 70%, which is pretty good, you see that deteriorate quite a bit. If you all of a sudden go uphill, downhill, and have some blind shots in there, that 70 will drop to – pretty much under 50%. And now all of a sudden you've got a really accurate representation in your skills test for what they actually do on the golf course. 
because they're not going to get that flat pitching ladder shot when they're on the golf course, are they? They're going to get an uphill shot. Next one's downhill. Then it's going to be ball below the feet, ball above the feet, all the different variations that come into the testing. So uh, feel free to change up and break all of the existing skills tests that are out there to make them suit uh, what you need as a coach. How do you, how, can I just jump in there? How do you score that, Nick? Like when you sort of say 70%, is there some kind of zone that you've got to be in and, and that's a one and if you're out of it, it's a zero? Was it a three, two, one point system? What sort of... Uh, what sort of things do you see in use that, that are going to be valid for a coach? What is sort of the, the framework to design a test that's going to be reasonably good? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that, that we'll look for there. Uh, you can set it up where it's like a, a ladder per se, where it might be between 50 and 55. And if the ball goes into that ladder zone, there'll be a width that's um, with it as well, right? But if the ball goes into that ladder between 50 and 55, then that'll just simply be a point. And you might do a 10-shot variation up and down the ladder, and if they get 7 out of 10, that's going to be 70%. Yep. But we've, we've, also, um, we've also experimented with as well having a particular – having a target area out there. So, for example, we'll put a flag out and then we'll have a, a radius around the, around the target. It might be like a 7-meter radius. And we'll actually have a score out there with a scorecard that will measure the landing spot Unfortunately, we don't have a green to hit to, so it's just hitting to a fairway, but they'll measure the landing spot of the ball as a distance from a a radius perspective to that particular target. Mm. But that's a test where obviously it's more arduous to do it. You need a scorer that's out there. It takes longer Mm. to do it, but the results that you get back are more specific. And then you can average that out over a particular distance and say, okay, last time you did this, you averaged a shot dispersion of 6.3. Let's try and improve on that. And if you get 6.2 this time, thumbs up, great job. And you're just looking to try and move that. So, And could, could you individualize that to, you know, say if it's a shots to hold data or strokes gain data or whatever, at a, from a certain distance? So if the on-course stats identify that this player struggles from 80 metres, they're pretty good from 120, but 80 is where they struggle or whatever, could you then sort of with an individual hammer away at that, yeah. at that distance and, with the testing? And that's the exact reason why we did it in that when we were originally doing stats and skills testing, we were just getting percentage numbers. And then any of the modern stats programs don't actually use percentages. They're actually using, um, you know, dispersion or, you know, mm. meters or feet away from the hole or away from the target. So that's why we came up with that. Uh, particular mm. concept there so we could then look at it and say okay from this distance in training you're averaging 6.3 but on the golf course you're actually averaging 8.2 and then we could either hammer away at the practice or figure out what the the difference is there and then we could adapt or modify the test to suit whatever we needed to do yep yeah very good we just keep drifting into talent development don't we we're bloody hopeless us coaches <laughs> <laughs> Let's let us help the players. No, I think that's cool. I think that will be a good topic for our next our next show. So I think we can we can dig a bit deeper into that area because I think we've uh, we've only scratched the surface with that. But um, some pretty cool chats there with with some talent ID. So I would love to hear from a the golf coaches out there or 
other sport coaches that are possibly tuning into the podcast and hear what they're doing. We can always share ideas and take ideas from other sports and apply them in a golf setting, and I would be really keen to hear that. So hit me up on the uh, Coaching Podcast socials, so on Twitter at Coaching Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Coaching Uncovered. And you can also add yourself to Scotty's Facebook group, which is, again, Scotty? Golf Performance Science. So you can search up that on Facebook and uh, apply to get into that group and we can continue the conversation there. So thank you, gents, for coming in and talking to me today. Certainly appreciate it. That was a a really cool conversation and I think we can – some pretty good information inside of that chat. Thanks for having us, Brent. Thanks. Having me. (laughs) Awesome, guys. Catch you soon.